For too many years, we've been told to show the horse who's boss, use gadgets, and ride two and three-year-olds. We're expected to follow fashionable trends, like riding behind the vertical or with your horse's nose on the ground, and put our short-term performance goals before the long-term health of our horse. This sounds crazy to me, because we're forgetting all about the horse. In this show, you'll learn why groundwork, lateral movements, liberty work, and pole work are so important in your training program. Plus, how to build lightness and softness in the saddle by recognizing the try and building confidence in both horse and rider. We know that horses are only physically mature at five and a half years of age at the earliest. We believe that collection is not a head position. We know that older horses are not disposable. Walking 100 miles on foot is amazing to build that connection together. And that bitless bridles, California hackmores, bosal and macates can be really useful. We never place competition goals above our horse's health and we know that self-carriage means that the horse does it by himself. We take as long as it takes and we understand the importance of working slowly with the horse to build connection, trust and partnership together and we aim to always put the horse's mental, physical and emotional needs first. So I promise to share all my horsemanship strategies with you. Sounds good? I'm your host, Elaine Heaney, creator of the Listening to the Horse documentary. Let's get this show started. I'm so happy you're here. This is episode one of this podcast. And I'm so excited to share a ton of stories and lessons with you. And I know that we have people tuning in from all over the world, so I'm really excited to get started. I should probably better start by introducing myself. I'm Elaine Heaney. I started riding at six years of age on a Shetland pony called Breezley, who would go no faster than a walk, <laughs> no matter what. And uh, my dad is a thoughtful and kind Irish horseman, and he used to tell me stories about my granddad, who would say that you should be able to ride your horse with two pieces of silk thread instead of using the reins. Your cue should be that small and subtle. Now, unfortunately, I never got to meet my granddad, who passed away before I was born, but I learned a lot of great lessons from my dad. Lessons like to always be patient and kind with the horse, to treat the horse with consideration, and to look at life from the horse's perspective. But as I grew older, my dream of having a beautiful riding horse who could do amazing moves and was confident in any situation, it started to slip through my fingers. So while dad taught me all of the most important principles of being with a horse from when I was very young, he wasn't able to teach me all the fancy maneuvers that I wanted to learn because he had never had the opportunity to go for professional horse riding lessons. But I had dreams, dreams of half passing across an Irish field with perfect self-carriage and swans flying overhead. Now I've always had a good imagination and actually there are swans in the pond near, near our house. So as a teenager, I was sent out to the larger world to get horse riding lessons. And that's when it all started to go wrong. I was told, you need to pull her head in. You need to get her more on the bit. She needs to be in a frame. Actually, no, you just need a stronger bit. Nope, that doesn't work. You need a double bridle because that has got two bits. So that's definitely going to help you. Every beautiful dream I had as a child of having a gorgeous riding horse was quickly demolished by the questionable lessons that these professional horse instructors were doing their best to teach me. In fact, in those lessons, most things that I tried to do just resulted in a more worried and a more stressed horse. And I was having no more of it because it wasn't fair to my horse. She did not deserve all of this force and pressure. And I already felt so guilty that I'd put her through these lessons. So I retired from all competitions and lessons at the ripe old age of 23 and uh, you know honestly I felt like a bit of a failure in the horse world 
but there was no goal so big that I was going to put my horse's health and our partnership together in Jeopardy 4. So for a few years, we did trail rides, I rode and I came home, but I had no plan or, or no, I, I, there was nothing that I was, there's no path that I was on. I still had goals and that I wanted to be a kind horsewoman and I'd love to be able to develop that light, soft, amazing riding horse, but do it without any gadgets, without any force. But I had no idea if something like that, like that was, was even possible. And I convinced myself that maybe I just wasn't a good enough horse rider or maybe I wasn't a tough enough horse rider to be able to ride a fancy horse doing fancy maneuvers. So in my early 20s, I had an office job in Dublin and after a few years, I eventually packed it in and I decided to go backpacking around Australia uh, with some friends. And it was the best decision I ever made. It was amazing. We flew into Melbourne stayed there for a couple of weeks it did rain which I was really surprised about because I'd watched way too much Home and Away on television and on Home and Away which is set in Australia it's always sunny it never rains so anyway I flew into Melbourne it rained for two weeks I was like what is going on we did the Great Ocean Road I saw the 12 Apostles stayed in Adelaide then for a few days and then we got this six day bus trip from Adelaide up to Alice Springs and Uluru it's so much fun we ended up being completely covered in red dust like top to toe all my clothes were red (laughs) and then after that I flew down to Sydney for a couple of weeks first time in Sydney and then headed up to Brisbane loved Brisbane and it was really great there but at this stage there was kind of an issue that was becoming more apparent and the thing is I'm a horse person I'm always going to be a horse person and I can't not see horses for an extended period of time So after my first eight weeks of backpacking around Australia, I was having serious withdrawal symptoms. So what I did is I walked into an internet cafe in Brisbane and I paid for an hour's access on one of their computers back in the day when there was internet cafes before we'd iPhones and all this kind of stuff. And I sat down at the computer and I typed in google.com and I started looking for websites of horse treks in Australia and in New Zealand. I found about maybe 20, 25 different places, took down their email addresses and then I emailed them all and I explained who I was and I asked them if they had any horse track jobs available. Like I just, I needed to see a horse, (laughs) I really did. So most places didn't reply back and a few replied back and said thanks but no thanks, you know, which is cool. But one horse track centre called Mount Lyford Horse Treks in the South Island in New Zealand, two hours north of Canterbury, they emailed me back and they said they needed a trail guide for their horse track business, which was all about bringing horses on horseback tours around the Southern Alps. And the idea was that I would work a few hours every day at the horse tracks in exchange for a room and board. It's kind of something they call woofing in Australia it sounded perfect I was so excited so what I did is I booked a flight from Brisbane over to Christchurch and I arrived over about two days later now I had no idea what to expect I could have been walking into anything okay I knew pretty much nothing about this horse tracks aside from it having some really beautiful pictures of horses and mountains on their website so the first thing that astonished me 
when I arrived here in New Zealand and I met all the horses who were beautifully cared for and they lived together in what I can only describe as like paradise in the South Island. These huge, they weren't even fields, they were even bigger than fields. It was just, it was beautiful. But what really astonished me when I arrived, because I had never seen this before, all of these horses, and there was probably maybe 12, 12 or 14 horses, they were all ridden in rope halters. Rope halters. I'd never seen a rope halter in my life. And I'd certainly never considered that using a rope halter with no bit to use on horses that would be taking out tourists, many who'd never ridden before to explore the Southern Alps would be like a thing or a good idea. Like it didn't sound like, it kind of sounded a bit, you know, dangerous to me. People who've never ridden before put on lovely horses, but ridden in rope halters, no bits, going up big mountains. How wrong was I? So over the three months that I was there, all of the tourists that came to visit us and go out on the horses, they were safe and happy. And all of the horses were really happy and healthy too. And it was literally probably the best job I've ever had in my whole life. And it was just a wonderful place to work in. But one day, something really astonished me and I didn't expect it. So the lead trail guide, who was a wonderful horsewoman, she was riding her chestnut horse in a rope halter. But here's the thing, I'd never seen this before. She was only using one rein. That blew my mind. What she was doing, it was remarkable. So she was cantering a horse bareback in a rope halter with one rein. And not only was she doing all of that, but her horse was completely relaxed and beautifully collected. So my previously held belief that collection was only something that could be achieved with force and pressure, like that was completely shattered. So not only could collection be achieved in a kind way, you don't even need a saddle. You don't even need a bit. And if you wanted to, it looks like you only needed one rein. <laughs> so my whole world shifted about 110 degrees. And so a new path to incredible horsemanship that was actually kind to the horse without using force or gadgets literally just appeared right in front of me. So for the rest of my time in New Zealand, I soaked up everything that I could and I started emailing more people to see who else can I learn from, where can I go? And on my way back home to Ireland, I spent a wonderful week in Australia expanding my knowledge in kabulture. And so eight months after I first took that, I took that first plane trip to, to Australia, I landed um, back in Ireland and I flew home with a mission that was something that was completely unexpected. And my mission was to restart my horsemanship education, but this time using gentle and kind ways to work with horses and to begin riding on one of these wonderful rope halters that I'd seen in New Zealand. And I wanted to learn as much as I could. So when I got back home to Ireland, I was, I was looking around and trying to find someone who was doing this kind of thing in Ireland, but I, there was literally nobody. There was, I couldn't, there wasn't one person doing it that I could find. And I, I really searched quite a lot. So I started Googling and then I was trying to look for anything online, hardly anything online. I really couldn't find anything that, that was any use. But what I did find out is I found out that there was some clinics that are held in the summer in England with different trainers who would fly in from abroad. So I thought, right, well, if that's going to be the only way I'm going to learn, I don't care. I will go and get a ticket to some place that I've never been before to in England and I will 
go and and hire a car i'd never hired a car in my life before i'd never driven in england before driving in england the motorways are quite scary okay it's not like ireland to me ireland is fine england whole different kettle of fish their roads are crazy so i had to kind of bite the bullet and uh, yeah and <laughs> try and get my get work my way around england in a hire car which was a, which was a little scary so what I ended up doing is I ended up flying to England every summer, usually a couple of times every summer, to watch clinics, to watch these amazing trainers that were coming over. And I ended up learning as much as I could, traveling as much as I could I, I could manage, really, kind of in between work and different things. If I could fit in a horse event somewhere and I could make it happen, I was gone. So I became a sponge. I'd learn and then I'd go home and try it out or try it out on my own horses. And then I started teaching students and their horses as well. And then the next step from there, I, I really wanted like these amazing horse people to actually come to Ireland, <laughs> which had, had never happened before. And so I, I started to host clinics with some incredible trainers like Mark Rashid and Steve Halfpenny. And I, I ended up creating this really wonderful bubble. And it was a bubble. So I had my own bubble. I got to know lots of amazing horse people all over the world. My skills were improving. My understanding and partnership with my horses was improving and so everything was going really great I I wanted to learn I had I had avenues that were open to me that I could learn I knew some really amazing people that kind of believed in the same methods that I did but there was still a problem and the problem was I was living in a literally a bubble <laughs> okay what I was doing wasn't the common approach in Ireland and it was really easy to visit maybe local events and you're going to see the gadgets, you're going to see the tie downs, you're going to see some stressed out horses and just, I just, I hate looking at all that stuff because I believe that every horse deserves to be treated with kindness and patience. But this wasn't always what I was seeing like in the real world outside of my bubble. So I made a decision to do something a little crazy. And I decided to create a documentary that would promote the concept of listening to the horse. And what I planned to do is I was going to ask 70 of the most inspiring horse teachers and clinicians and friends of mine that I knew to share their experiences with the world in this documentary. And then what I wanted to do was I wanted to premiere this online. So you could watch it like no matter what country you were in. So if you lived in West Mayo in Ireland, you could watch it. If you lived, I don't know, somewhere in like miles away from everyone in the middle of nowhere in Texas, you could watch it. If you lived on a mountainside in beautiful New Zealand and, and barely had Wi-Fi, well, hopefully you have Wi-Fi, but you could watch it there. And it was so much work to put together. And I remember the week that it launched. Now, a few friends had seen like different parts of the documentary before, but no one had seen all of it. I was so nervous. Oh, I was, my heart was like, that whole week was just crazy. So the week it launched, I was actually in the States, in the US. And so the way I had it set up, and I didn't realize I was going to be in the US at the time, but the way I had it set up was that every day there would be one new episode and that episode would go live at 5 a.m. US time. So that meant that every day I would get up at 4.30 a.m. Like my stomach was nuts. I was so nervous. And uh, yeah, I'd get up at 4.30 and then it would go live at 5 a.m. in the morning. And I had to be up and awake because I needed to make sure that the emails went out, that the videos worked. You don't want to say something's going to be there at, at whatever time and people log in and then there's, the video doesn't play or the page doesn't appear and all this tech stuff can go wrong. So, so at 5 a.m., 
it would go live. And of course, like in Europe, that was like 10 a.m. in the morning. And in Australia, it was oh probably like five or six in the evening. So people would around the world, they'd start watching it straight away. And so 5 a.m. email goes out and I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> I hope they like it. And I'd wait for 45 minutes until the first review started coming in because each episode is about 45 minutes. And it was such it was such a scary and, and emotional week. And literally, I went through that process like every day for seven days of just wondering what people would think of it and and what they would say about it. And I was so nervous, but I started to get all these emails coming in and stories and messages on Facebook about how people really seemed to love the documentary. And not only that, but how it had it really helped people. And over the days and weeks after the launch, like I was these emails that were coming in where they were just they were crazy. I was getting emails from horse owners who had watched the documentary and then decided not to ride their three year old until they were older or that they felt okay that actually it was kind of something they weren't too sure about but they were being pressured into doing it because everybody else in their area did it but now after watching the documentary they're like no it's fine I don't care if they're pressuring me this is my horse I'm going to do it the way I want to and I'm not going to ride them as a three-year-old I got emails from riders who realize the collection isn't a head position but it's a weight transfer from the forequarters to the hindquarters and this is going to completely change how they train their horses I read stories from people who were going to sell their horse, but instead they tried out some of the methods from the documentary and they've now built amazing partnerships together and they can see a future together with their horse. And it really took me by surprise how big an impact that this documentary had for so many horse people. And the concept behind the documentary was if horses could talk, what would they say? And so it was like, it was really humbling to see how it really helped a lot of horse owners around the world. And if you're curious about it, I'm not too sure if you've seen it already or not, but I'd like to invite you to get a free ticket to watch episode one. And all you need to do is literally grab a bag of popcorn and go to listen to the horse.com and you'll be able to get your ticket there. So in my next episode, I'm going to share what listening to the horse actually looks like in real life and how I use this approach with my horse, Ozzy. So I'll see you then.